Well, good morning. It's great to be here um, with you and um, loving the Edinburgh Festival. My, as, as was just said, my boys are in a production of Bugsy Malone here for the week. So we're here for the week soaking up the festival. And um, yeah, I've been asked to speak for a few moments on this question. Why consider Christian faith in the 21st century? We're here in Edinburgh, you know, uh, we're surrounded by um, all kinds of options, all sorts of um, creativity. Why would we be interested in Christian faith? And obviously, there are lots of ways that we could approach this question. But today, um, I just want to really focus in on the person of Jesus Christ and to say that it's Jesus who makes Christianity different from all the other worldviews, all the other explanations as to how we might find meaning in life today. It's Jesus who's this extraordinary figure who's worthy of our attention. The brilliant writer H.G. Wells, not a Christian at all himself, called Jesus Christ the most dominant person in human history. The historian Philip Schaff put it like this, describing the extraordinary influence that, that Jesus Christ has had on the subsequent history and culture of the world. He said this, Jesus of Nazareth, without money or arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects upon people which lie beyond the reach of the orator or the poet. The world's chronology is linked to Jesus' birth, even though we don't know the exact date of of his birth. It's had such impact that we now measure history according to this person. Except for one brief moment in his childhood when he went to Egypt, Jesus never travelled outside of his own very tiny country. And yet his followers today are in every country of the world. Lots of his sayings have become proverbial in the English language, used regularly without people having any idea of where they came from originally. Sayings like, the salt of the earth, love thy neighbour, do unto others, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the blind leading the blind, judge not lest you be judged, the one who lives by the sword dies by the sword, wolves in sheep's clothing, cast the first stone, eat, drink and be merry, the sign of the times, or go the extra mile. All of those phrases originated by Jesus Christ. Totally common parlance in the English language now today. Jesus never wrote a book, and yet more books have been written about him than about anyone or anything else. And one film based on his recorded words has been translated into over a hundred languages and has been seen by more people on earth than any film in history. 
Jesus has exerted extraordinary influence on humankind, probably more than any other individual person, despite the fact that the things he said and did and encouraged other people to do ran counter to the accepted norms even of the time. One example is that the ancient world honoured all sorts of virtues, virtues like courage and wisdom, but absolutely categorically not a virtue like humility. People were divided up by class delineation. Cicero wrote, rank must be preserved. But Jesus' life as a foot-washing servant would eventually lead to the adoption of humility as a widely held and admired virtue. The historian John Dixon puts it like this. He says, it is unlikely that any of us, any of us would aspire to this virtue, humility, were it not for the historical impact of Jesus. But more importantly than his influence on culture is Jesus' claim to be God with us. Jesus' claim to have made God known to us. One way of exploring that central claim that Jesus is God and that he's made God known to us in human flesh is a statement that he makes in the Gospel of John. And it comes in chapter 14. And it's the statement, I am the way, the truth and the life. The story is told um, of a trial in Mississippi in the South in America. And um, a lawyer was conducting his first trial. He was the lawyer for the prosecution. He was young and he was rather nervous. He'd never done it before. So he called the first witness to the stand. And she was a rather elderly, grandmotherly lady. And he approached her and he said, you know, he thought to himself, I'm going to ask her a really easy question just to set her at ease. So he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? And she responded, oh, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot and you haven't the brains to realise you will never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned and not knowing how to recover from this. He appointed across the courtroom to the defence lawyer and said, well, do you know him, the defence lawyer? She said, oh, yes, I do. I've known Mr Bradley since he was a youngster. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone. His law practice is one of the worst in the entire state, not to mention he cheated on his wife with three different women, and one of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. The defence lawyer and Mr Bradley nearly died. At this point, the judge asked both lawyers to approach the bench. And in a very quiet voice, he said, if either of you two idiots asks her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. (laughs) An honest description, a truthful answer, can be very disconcerting. Here, in John's Gospel, Jesus Christ claims to be truth, not just God with us, truth with us. And in our culture, truth is very disconcerting. Who'd have thought Trump would end up in the White House? Who'd have thought that the word of the year for the Oxford English Dictionary in 2017 would be post-truth? 
In December 2017, so just a few months ago, the independent newspaper reported on um, a, an incident in London around a restaurant, and the headline was this. The shed at Dulwich was London's top-rated restaurant. Just one problem, it didn't exist. The writer um, of the article wrote this. He said, Ubar Butler, a writer, used his home, a garden shed in Dulwich, a suburb of South London, a website and a burner phone to create the concept restaurant and got it verified on TripAdvisor. He created a web page with a menu that were inspired, was inspired by moods which he said he was aiming at a concept silly enough to infuriate your dad. The website was illustrated with photographs of the food. The thing is that none of the food was made of food. It was all made from household products. One example being a, a scallop that was actually a laundry tablet. And um, foam, supposedly created by a chef, was actually shaving foam. And this guy and his friends wrote fake reviews. And the restaurant began to climb the rankings on TripAdvisor. The restaurant um, took off beyond this guy and his friends as other people wrote reviews about it. And soon it was ranked 30th on TripAdvisor and reservation inquiries started coming in from all over the world, including the Saudi royal family, Hollywood superstars, sports personalities and all kinds of people desperately trying to get a table at the shed at Dulwich. Some people even started to try and find the restaurant in the real world. This writer, Ubar Butler, said that people were walking up and down his street and even his neighbours were saying, do you know where this restaurant is? Do you know how to get in and get a table at the shed? And he said, the phone rings more than ever before. And then one day the fateful day arrived and he received a personal message from TripAdvisor and as he opened it, he expected to hear that he had been exposed and that he was in big trouble. But instead, the company had contacted him to tell him that his listing had received 89,000 views in a single day and that now the shed at Dulwich had ascended to the number one restaurant ranking on TripAdvisor in all of London. The only problem being it didn't exist. Questions of truth can be uncomfortable. When we think about in truth in the abstract, it might seem less important to us to be certain, less important to us to even know what we think about a particular issue. Is it true that Government Minister X briefed against the First Minister or the Prime Minister or not? You may answer, I honestly don't care. But in the personal realm, things are more highly charged, aren't they? Is it true that your girlfriend cheated on you last night? Is it true that the person you always thought was your father is actually your father? Those aren't issues to be approached with a kind of breezy shrug of the shoulder and a, you know, everyone's perspective is equally valid. And here in this statement, Jesus Christ makes, I am the way, the truth, the life, an astonishing, ultimate claim is being made that goes beyond the abstract and reaches into the personal for every single one of us. He's saying truth is an essential question and it does matter. It matters for you and for me. And it matters beyond a, a category of preference. Do you prefer chocolate or vanilla? 
It matters beyond that, more to the realm of a matter of fact, will the rope hold me? Jesus claims in his radical statement that ultimate truth is found in him, that this is an issue less of ice cream flavour choice and more, will this rope hold my weight? You see, at the beginning of John's gospel, we've been told that God is the logos, the word, who is at the beginning of everything. This in Greek, that word logos is the word from which we derive logic. And when the Bible was being written, that word logos already had a meaning in the Greco-Roman world. The Stoics used that word logos as the rational principle behind the universe. Thought, reason, energy were all encapsulated in this idea of logos. Logos was also used to describe the expression of speech. But here John takes a word that people already knew to a certain extent and he applies it to a person, to Jesus Christ. He's saying this person who lived in history is the one who has always existed. He is the source of creation. He is the source of information. So everything around us that we see in the universe and everything that gives our lives meaning comes from Jesus. And that Jesus entered the world as a human being, the very world that he made. When Jesus says, I am the truth, that's something of what he's claiming. The ordered cosmos around us, the detailed way in which the universe has been put together, that he is the source of that and that we can come to know him. Now, um, existentialists and uh, others who've lived without God realized that without God, all kinds of possibilities of truth disappear. Jean-Paul Sartre, the brilliant writer, put it like this. He said, the existentialist finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be what he calls a good a priori, since there is no infinite or perfect consciousness to think it. It is nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now upon the plane where there are only men. Sartre writes, Dostoevsky once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. And that for existentialism is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. And as a consequence, man is forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend upon, either within or outside of himself. Do you see what he's saying? On the one hand, you have this possibility that the Logos, a personal source of science, of reason, of matter, of this universe, of purpose, of meaning, that that exists and that that took flesh and came and revealed himself among us, Jesus. And that ultimately, as human beings, we've been created to search and thirst for that truth and to come to know him personally and to find meaning in our own lives located in him. 
But if that is not the case, if God does not exist, as the existentialists, as the great atheist writers agree, life is ultimately meaningless. Man, woman, we are forlorn. The the claim at the heart of the Christian faith is not just that it is preferable that God exists, that life not be forlorn, utterly meaningless and purposeless. But that that claim that life has purpose, that we can know our creator, is actually true. Not just that it's preferable, but that it's true. You see, Jesus, by locating truth in himself, is saying that there's more than just a rational foundation for truth in the Christian faith. Truth is personal. It has a face. Truth is Jesus, and we can come to know him. Now, we all know that people's true colors come out as we get to know them in relationship. We know that in simple terms, that truth is discovered in relationship. The story is told of a guy called Tom who, with Valentine's Day approaching, went to a sort of department store to buy his girlfriend a gift. And he met one of those very terrifying women who works behind those cosmetic counters in the department store. And uh, he said to her, I'd really like to buy my girlfriend a gift. Could you help me? I don't know what to get. So she said to him, well, how about some perfume? And she showed him a bottle costing £60. That's a bit much, Tom said. And so she returned with a smaller one costing £40. That's still a bit much, Tom said. And so she returned with an even smaller one costing £30. That's still too much, he said Tom, and the the, um, woman was now getting very annoyed, so she emerged with a truly microscopic sample-sized bottle, saying this one would be 15. Tom said, what I mean is that I'd like to see something really cheap. At this point, the lady produced a mirror and held it up to his face. We know that truth is discovered in relationship. Truth transcends ideas and it speaks of character and personhood. And Jesus Christ, in claiming to be the truth, is saying that God, who is that logos, that rational principle behind the universe, entered history as a human being. And he's not just offering us ideas, he's offering us himself. That's why Jesus can claim not just to be the truth, but also to be the way to God. You see, he's unlike any other religious figure or teacher. He doesn't say, here are my great ideas that you need to understand if you want to find meaning or purpose in life or if you want to get to know God. And he doesn't say, here are some moral hoops that I've created that you need to be able to jump through if you are going to come to know God or find meaning and purpose in life. He doesn't say, here's this path that I've constructed that you need to walk on. He says, I am the way. It's me. How does he do it? Well, ultimately, he does it through his death on the cross. The Romans considered crucifixion to be the most dangerous 
shameful and painful and and abhorrent form of execution. The Roman statesman Cicero calls it the most cruel and disgusting penalty. And the Jewish historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. The Roman jurist Julius Paulus lists crucifixion in first place as the worst of all capital punishments, ahead of death by burning, beheading, or by being torn to pieces by wild beasts. And um, Seneca writes about crucifixion in this way. He says, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting his life out drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wounds on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life among long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying, even before mounting the cross. That's the verdict of of a Roman writer. The ancients considered death by crucifixion not just to be any execution, but the most obscene and disgraceful and horrific death known to man. Jesus claims to be the way to God and willingly goes to crucifixion. And his death has a significance beyond a painful death in history. His death was to be for us. His words from the cross directed to the man dying next to him, today you will be with me in paradise, startle us today. As he dies this agonizing death with insults hurled at him, love pours out of him for a thief dying next to him as he promises him life beyond the grave. What makes Christianity different? What, why might I be a Christian today? Well, that's a major part of it. The person of Jesus, as God revealed to us in human flesh, not requiring moral standards of performance or intellectual learning from us, not demanding that we give him money or offerings, but God humbling himself, God suffering, God making a way for you and I to be forgiven, to be given new life. And all of this is more than a myth. It's more than a meme. It's more than a cultural trope. It's more than a nice idea. It's more than a kind of religious superstition. It would be important if it were more than all of those things to know that it actually happened in history. And the consensus of, moral, of modern scholarship is that these things did happen in history. One of the most um, agnostic scholars in this field today is a guy called Bart Ehrman. And he writes this, Jesus Christ certainly existed as every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees. He existed And the central facts of his life and his death and his resurrection are known by scholars, sceptical as well as believing. But I hear you wonder today, I talked a bit about reason and I talked um, a little bit about science earlier. 
if we're being asked to believe that Jesus just didn't die, but that he was raised from the dead, doesn't that contradict science? Doesn't that contradict reason? Wouldn't a miracle like a resurrection be impossible? Wouldn't it violate the laws of nature? Well, um, if we have a commitment to the impossibility of the supernatural, we're going to think that it's impossible that Jesus was raised from the dead. But upon what is that commitment based? With regard to miracles, C.S. Lewis pointed out that if on each of two nights I put £10 into my bedside table, the drawer in my bedside table, the laws of arithmetic tell me that I now have a total of £20. Two nights, £10 on each night, £20. If, however, on waking up, I find only £5 in the drawer, I don't conclude that um, the laws of arithmetic have been broken, but possibly the laws of England. Do you see what he's saying? I've put £10 each night on two nights in my drawer. If I wake up and there's only five quid in there, I don't think maths is broken. I think someone has stolen 15 pounds. In other words, the laws of nature describe to us the regularities on which the universe normally runs. But God, who is the source of the universe and those laws, the source of natural law, is no more the prisoner of those laws than the thief is a prisoner of the laws of arithmetic. God can intervene in the system that he has created. God can, if he wills, intervene. He can do something special. He can do a miracle without breaking the laws of nature, just like a thief can intervene into my bedroom and into that system. Now, perhaps even more important to remember is that at this point, it is, is at this point that it is my knowledge of maths that warns me that I have been robbed. It is the fact that I know that 10 plus 10 equals 20 that warns me that when I find only five, that, uh, that a break-in has occurred. And in the same way, it is our knowledge of the laws of nature that alert us to a miracle. A miracle wouldn't be a sign or an intervention or any kind of indicator that God exists if we didn't know natural law. So if I didn't know that dead people stay dead and buried, I wouldn't be aware of those natural laws around life and death. So a resurrection wouldn't be a miracle. It wouldn't be a sign of anything. And so it's our, our knowledge of natural law that alert us to the possibility that enable us to recognize a miracle. And so if you happen to be skeptical here or perhaps have friends who are skeptical, it may be of interest to you to know that when you do investigate biblical miracle claims like that of the resurrection of Jesus, you might be surprised by what you discover. Richard Swinburne, the philosophy professor at the University of Oxford for years, retired now, but he comes still to um, teach at our centre, demonstrated in his research on the resurrection of Jesus that it is strongly supported by probability theory. 
Swinburne used the probability formula known as Bayes' theorem in assessing the likelihood of Jesus' resurrection from the dead having actually happened. Now, allowing for the artificiality of allowing precise figures for different components, Swinburne used as the example of the calculation of the probability of Jesus having been raised from the dead 97%. In other words, he's arguing that the evidence overwhelmingly supports the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. There's good evidence historically, as well as when we look at the universe around us, for Jesus Christ being the truth. So what makes Christianity different? Why be a Christian today? God, the foundation of, and source of reality, physical and metaphysical, entered history as the perfect human being in Jesus Christ. He took the initiative to have relationship with us rather than demanding things of us, offering us grace, offering us forgiveness, offering us truth and life, and offering us a way that is him going to die on the cross, a sacrificial death for us. What makes Christianity different, what makes it, I think, appealing is the claim that this is not assertion that you just simply have to bow to. This is not cultural preference that you are born into. But this happened in history. And so your scrutiny, my scrutiny are invited. And just like the thief on the cross next to Jesus as he died, today we are invited to be with him. We are invited into that relationship with God. Dependent not on us jumping through moral hoops and dependent not on us learning a whole load of laws or information, but simply beginning today with that, a response to that offer for relationship. So what makes Christianity different ultimately is the person of Jesus and each one of us is invited to make that personal response to him. Thank you for listening. We're going to take some questions now, I think. Yep, what we're going to do is we've got some questions that you've slidoed in. Thank you very much. So Zach's going to deal with those. And I'm just going to stand over here. And if you have a question that you want to ask, you can make your way around. And then I'll filter it in. I can ask it for you. If you don't actually want to stand up here with a mic, or I can hold the mic up and you can ask it. Alrighty, question number one. Um, if you want to vote your questions as well, then you do that too. There's some nice ones in here. Um, I'll start this one. What, um, how do we live by the truth of Jesus when people don't trust truth statements anymore? Thank you. Great question. Um, I think I would challenge the idea that people don't trust truth statements anymore in the sense that um, life is unlivable if we don't trust truth statements. So even the statement, we don't trust truth statements, is a truth statement. So even someone who's saying, I don't trust in truth anymore, is expecting you to interpret what they've said as meaning that. So we all live in a way as if we assume that the essential things 
um, in our lives, whether it's our communication, just speaking, that that people can understand what we say. We all live in a way that, that we believe in truth when we look at our bank account or when we get in a car and obey the rules of the road. But what has happened in our society is that a whole sort of other category of, of areas around preference or around um, personal choice have, have um, come to be sort of understood as truth statements. It's called relativism. And so um, we say, well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. But actually, when we're talking about those things, we're talking about things in the realm of preference. And so as, as a Christian, what I would be seeking to do is to say that um, there may well be multiple worldviews, Eastern worldviews or um, uh, agnosticism, all sorts of systems that do position themselves in the sphere of relativism. So, you know, do these rituals if they make you feel nice. Do, do aromatherapy if that's nice. But Jesus categorically did not place himself or his claims in that sphere. His sphere of life that he placed his, his claims in are more the law of gravity kind of sphere. We can disagree. We can say, I don't believe in the law of gravity. But if one of us jumps from that balcony to here saying, I don't believe in the law of gravity, we're going to actually prove it even as we break our leg. Jesus is saying that, that, that his claims, that the claims of the Christian faith are not around preference, culture and taboo, but they are around fact and truth and reality. And so I think we can do something about that by speaking about that, but also by living as Christians in such a way that we demonstrate this isn't just you know, societal pressure. I don't just believe this because my parents or grandparents believed it. My grandparents certainly didn't believe any of this stuff. This is not just inherited superstition. And so we live in a way that, um, that the truth is evident in our lives. And that might take different forms. It may be that when people observe our lives, they see miracles. So they see the observable reality of God breaking into to our lives and our churches and our communities. Or um, it may be that, you know, John, in John 17, Jesus talks about people knowing that we're his, his disciples because of the quality of love between Christians. So it may be that they see um, a, a totally different level of, of community when they observe the Christian life. So there are going to be lots of ways um, that we can live that out. But I think the key thing is to contend for this truth, not being, do you prefer vanilla or strawberry or chocolate? This truth is of will the rope hold? It's of that kind of order. Great, thank you. Great question. Um, what's interesting is that other religions don't actually make the same um, claims. So as part of my work, um, I've made quite a study of comparative religion. Um, and so we could sort of take probably two broad categories of other faiths and, and lay them alongside. Um, and you'll see that they're actually trying to do something different. 
So if you look at um, uh, the sort of Hinduism, Buddhism sphere of that, that sort of Eastern sort, um, the Buddha broke with um, strict Hinduism because of the caste system. But a lot of the underlying ideas are, are the same. The idea that um, ultimate reality, Brahman, is impersonal and abstract. And that the goal of, of the pantheist is to find oneness with the ultimate one. So um, what the Buddha taught is that um, the path to enlightenment, to nirvana, is to, f to find oneness with the impersonal one. The pathway to that is about detachment and disconnection. So um, uh, the Buddha sort of finally made his decision to, uh, to, to follow his own teachings and to kind of establish this new this new faith on the night that his firstborn son was born. He left his wife and his firstborn son detached from emotion, detached from relationship, and began to travel and, develop, and developed a sevenfold path to enlightenment. So what Buddhism is saying is that um, there's, there, there's no sort of ultimate place for, for relationship or personhood or purpose that the cosmos, that the universe around us, the physical universe around us is illusory. The only thing that is real is this impersonal reality. So you have to detach from everything to become separate from everyone and everything and find that oneness. Okay, so that's, that's, that's one sort of possible um, alternative, one kind of possible religion. It's not rooted in any kind of evidential base. It's a choice, it's a decision that, that someone might want to follow, but it's, it's a kind of set of philosophical ideas. Or we might look at Islam, where um, the central teaching is around um, a, a, an individual called Muhammad, who is um, claiming to have a kind of final revelation from God, and he's saying um, God is one, God is Tawheed, God is other, God is totally different from us, and there are these um, kind of moral rules that everybody needs to follow, and that ultimately at the end, when we die, whether we've followed them enough, will be determined by a huge set of weighing scales. Your life will be weighed in the scales, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you'll be okay. But if they don't, you will not be okay. That's the central teaching of, of, of Islam, and Muhammad himself in the Quran is not sure that his own life will have enough good in it. Even himself, as the founder of religion, is not sure whether it will ever be enough. So ultimately, it's a system, a kind of moral system. There are things that you need to do. So uh, alongside those, those kind of two broad categories, when you look at the Christian faith, what Jesus is saying is not here's this way, these morals you need to follow, and not here's this philosophical teaching you need to digest and certainly not detach from the world or from others, but that, but that he is God, that God exists, that God brought this whole universe into existence, but we've been created for purpose and that we can come to know him and that we can receive his forgiveness, that he is the way. And unlike either Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, at the heart of the Christian faith is this kind of evidential challenge. 
So Jesus, um, so the early church all point to the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus as something that happened in history, a miracle that happened, but that we can test, that we can ask questions of, for which there is evidence. Not just evidence within ourselves that we intuitively recognize, yes, I need forgiveness, or yes, that, that description of reality makes sense to me, but actual, tangible, concrete, historical evidence. There is no other system that even attempts to do that. Now, um, the early Christians and still today on university campuses around Britain, you'll see that that approach is mocked. It's a very dangerous approach to say, there's evidence for this belief. Investigate the evidence. See for yourself whether this is true, whether it stands up. And um, what strikes me is, is that often as a church, we just don't even bother doing that. We're not showing people or telling them the evidence. But where they do um, come across it and see it and experience it, it is so different from every other system and so robust. So sorry, long answer, but big question. I find it interesting that the two other ways of religion is things that we can fall into as perhaps as well, right? Yeah. Lots of questions with lots of votes. Another one is, why are the followers of Jesus now presented as being on the wrong side of virtually every modern liberal movement? What can we do about it? Thank you. Great question. Um, in fact, I skipped over a, a section because we had a, um, a timing thing here, um, which, which I wanted to include about that. Um, I think I would, I would challenge um, the assumption of that question. I would certainly say that, that people who've claimed to follow Jesus have been on the wrong side of a lot of moral issues. But in those moments, true followers of Christ have also been on the right side of those moral movements. And actually, if you go right back to the origin, to the history, um, and, and, and look at who Jesus was, you see examples of that. Um, if we just take the example of the role of women in society or culture as one example, we could, we could think about slavery or, or um, other questions too. But let's just think about the role of women. We might look at the history of the church and say, well, you know, churches have been patriarchal, they've kept women down. But, but, but think about this for a moment. It was women who were the most important historic witnesses to all the central events surrounding Jesus Christ. Now think about that in the context of what I've just said, that almost every other religious system is based on assertion or the charisma of the individual, Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. And the Christian faith is basing itself on a sort of evidential basis, saying this actually happened, here's the evidence that it happened. So bearing that in mind, think about the position that women play within that very important um, evidential context. So Mary, a teenager, is the only witness to the Annunciation of the Virgin Birth and so is the primary witness to this idea of incarnation, that Jesus is God with us, primarily witnessed by a woman historically. It's women 
who stood at the foot of the cross, all the Gospels tell us that the male disciples deserted Jesus, apart from John, he's mentioned in one of the Gospels, who stood far away. But we're told that the women stood close, and so were the witnesses to the details of the crucifixion. The seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross, the details of of what it looked like witnessed by women. So this idea at the heart of the Christian faith that we can be forgiven because of the crucifixion of Jesus, primarily witnessed by women. And then um, uh, the resurrection is first witnessed by women, the empty tomb. The most significant events of Jesus' life identity, death, and resurrection were witnessed firsthand, primarily by women. A woman was the leader of the first European church in Philippi. Her name is Lydia. A woman was the leader of the Roman church, and Paul regarded her as exercising authority. Her name was Phoebe. We um, see women playing all sorts of incredible roles in the early church, Um, Dorothy L. Sayers, a brilliant um, writer, puts it like this. She says, perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, and there never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them and never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously. God incarnate in human history invited women to be first at the cradle and last at the cross, women to play this extraordinary role. And then you see here in Britain in the suffragette movement, um, women quoted the Bible in their campaign just as there were churchmen and others saying, no, shut up, you don't need the vote. Okay, so with these, with these issues, certainly Christians have been on the wrong side, but there have been Christians on the right side. I think of Francis of Assisi during the Crusades, who whilst armies were sent from the Vatican and sent um, from France to go and fight the Crusades, Francis of Assisi, who we know as the weird saint who sort of talked to birds and stuff, but who's actually an amazing thinker and writer, what did he do? He went amongst the armies that had come from Rome and preached the gospel to them and told them to go home. And he crossed the line and went and preached the same gospel of Jesus to the Muslim armies and was invited to address the sultan, to speak, and and actually did a miracle, and all sorts of amazing things happened. So in an example like the Crusades, you will see both. So let me finish with this on this point. Um, Very good friends of mine is a woman called Elaine Storkey, and um, she's a, a brilliant writer and sociologist. And she said, we are always going to be disappointed by the church. The church is, after all, made up of members of the human race. We are going to be disappointed by what Christians have done and what Christians may even do in the name of Jesus. But unlike other systems that I may have talked about, um, Christianity is not predicated on a set of ideas, a set of teaching, or a set of moral hurdles. It's predicated on the person of Jesus. We, his followers, may fail. We will fail. Of course we will. 
But the question is, is he God with us? Is he the Logos? Did he come in history? Did he rise from the dead? Is it actually true that his death on the cross means that you and I can be forgiven, that we can live at peace with God, that we can find ultimate meaning and purpose in life? That's the crucial question. And I want to suggest to you today that there is very good reason that we are warranted in trusting his claims and that if we investigate them, they will stand up. Great, thank you. A really good question. Um, my question to that question would be, how do we understand what a human being is? All of us have a worldview. It's not only Christians that have a worldview, a set of ideas about the world. All of us have a worldview, and there are multiple um, different sort of options and possibilities. And what a human being is, um, the answer to that question is, is going to be different within each system. So if we look at a worldview like um, atheism, obviously there are going to be different formulations of it. But the idea that, that there's no logos, there's no um, intelligent creator behind the universe that human beings are a product of chance, that we are just slime on this earth. And the process, the mechanism by which human life has come about is a process called the survival of the fittest, where um, the strong eliminate the weak. And so um, an, an ethic uh, that, that is, is derived from that worldview would struggle to come up with reasons why the strong shouldn't eliminate the weak because there's no moral basis for human beings having existed and there's no difference between a human being and a pig. We, don't, we shouldn't feel, Peter Singer, the great atheist um, writer, says we shouldn't feel any different as we stand um, at a farm where a, an animal is going to be killed to be eaten than we do standing at the gates of Auschwitz. There's more, no moral difference between um, eating meat or um, taking a life. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example of it. But you see, underpinning um, uh, the ideas of, 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 of an atheist framework is, is the sense that human life, there's no sacredness to it. We're here by chance, and we just are here. Now, if you look at the Christian worldview, if you look at the beginning of, of Genesis... Um, it talks about men and women being created in the image of God, regardless of what we believe, regardless of whether we believe in God or not, regardless even of what we do or what is done to us, there is an essential sacredness and dignity around human life. And that's, that's rooted in a Christian idea. And so what I would say is if someone observes a human do being doing good and beautiful things, that when I read the Bible as a Christian, my heart leaps and I think, yes, um, the Bible anticipates that, that there is a, a sacredness and a, a beauty to human life because we are image bearers of the divine. 
My question would be to the atheist, how would you explain, or how would an atheist friend explain um, a sense of the sacredness of human life? It, it, it's difficult to, to ground that um, within an atheist system. So that's how I'd answer that one. That's great. It's really helpful, isn't it? We finish, I think, we have a round of applause, maybe. Okay, thank you.